You're listening to Plenary Session. Welcome to Plenary Session. Today, you're in for a real treat. My guest today is Dr. Andre Mansour. Dr. Mansour is a hospitalist at OHSU, and he is the author of a new book entitled Frameworks for Internal Medicine. This is a book that every practicing internist or diagnostician has to have on their bookshelf. And this is a book that every chief resident must have because this is the book for chief residents. And we're gonna talk a lot about that book in the podcast that follows. But first, I'm gonna talk about a very provocative article that appeared in the British Medical Journal. At last, we have a randomized control trial of wearing parachutes while jumping from airplanes. It is the trial that some of us have waited for for over a decade since the seminal paper by Smith and Pell in the British Medical Journal, and it is at last here. And I wish to suggest that its publication, even in the Christmas issue of the British Medical Journal, is a grave disservice for evidence-based medicine and will likely be used to promote failed or ineffective or unproven medical practices for at least a decade to come, and that the mere act of publishing this is a mistake on the part of the British Medical Journal who should be and has always been steadfast guardian of evidence-based medicine and that these jokes unfortunately have a real world price and that price you're going to hear about today on plenary session so stay tuned but first a plug if you like this episode and you like this podcast go to the itunes store and give us five stars it really means a lot write a review if you have the time if you want to follow us on twitter we're at plenary underscore session And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. So first, parachutes. I just want to tell you a little bit about parachutes and the parachute analogy, because this is something that listeners may know that I've thought about, I care about, I think is quite interesting. The story goes back many years. I guess the first thing you should know. Throughout most of human history, the majority of things that doctors did to patients in the hopes that those interventions would make patients better off were not proven to work at the outset through randomized controlled trials. In fact, the first randomized controlled trials date from the 1940s, and probably the MRC trials of streptozocin and tuberculosis count as that. Maybe the first controlled studies were go back to James Lind and, and Scurvy, though strictly those were not randomized studies. But we can debate exactly what the first precise moment we had randomized controlled trials were, but it was likely sometime around the 1940s. But that wasn't the seminal moment for evidence-based medicine. It wasn't the seminal moment for randomized controlled trials. That really probably happened in the 1980s and early 1990s, where there were a couple of interventions that were sacrosanct, that many, many people believed, boy, this must work. This is absolutely certain to work. This is a slam dunk. Only an idiot would want to test this intervention because only an idiot would doubt that this works and this works for sure. And there are a lot of things that people felt were like this. One example was the use of antiarrhythmic drugs, particularly class one agents after MI for patients with persistent and frequent PVCs. 
And this practice was widespread. It had a very neat pathophysiology explanation that PVCs, post-MI, were bad. You could get something called an R on T phenomenon. You could put yourself into VT. A patient could die. This class of medication suppresses PVCs. There are fewer PVCs on EKG, on telemetry. Therefore, it should save lives. And then finally, in the 1980s, a randomized control trial cast was run to test this hypothesis. Do these antiarrhythmic drugs that have a clear and logical mechanism of action, do they save lives? And in fact, providers were incredibly reluctant to randomize patients because they believed they knew the answer. On what planet is it ethical to subject someone to a 50% chance of not getting this intervention, they thought. And yet, lo and behold, by 89 and 91 and 92, with the first publications of the CAST study, they found something rather paradoxical, that the people in whom these antiarrhythmic drugs were deployed, they did not have a survival benefit, and at least some arms of that study had a survival decrement. They were harmed by that intervention. So this was a seminal moment, I think, and it was one of several moments that occurred around this time period where clear pathophysiology, the belief of many experts a community feeling that this should work was put on its head by careful experimentation. And actually, it's something we no longer do. So randomized trials, when did they really come into vogue? When did they really change medicine as a culture? They changed it the moment the trial contradicted what people's gut feelings were and what the best pathophysiology were. I think that was the sort of the seminal moment for empiricism over rationalism in medicine. But in the years that followed, there were many people who didn't like this newfound focus on randomized trials. There were people out there, proponents of evidence-based medicine, who kept asking, look, you want to do this surgery. You want to implant this device. Do you have any randomized data that this improves outcomes for people with this condition? And they said that with that level of disdain um, because we also knew that the majority of interventions that someone can dream up, that someone think are bioplausible, probably don't work. And just a clear example of that fact being true is just the rampant failure rate of drug development pipelines. So drug developers, companies that try to bring drugs to the market, they are trying to pick the candidate compounds that are the most promising. And they are running clinical trials of many, 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 many cancer drugs that really are promising, that have good basic science information, often you know, elegant mouse studies or perhaps cell culture data. These aren't drugs that are just being pulled out at random, although I've joked you know, on this podcast that they could do that and still turn a profit in today's regulatory environment, but that's a different story. But they are trying to attempt to test bioplausible drugs, and yet we know the result is and feels like cancer medicine, something like 6.8%, according to Michael Hay and colleagues, uh, of these drugs actually come to market. And, and that market bar is not a randomization bar. It's not the bar that they really do work. It's the bar that we've set that's a little bit lower than that. Um, but nevertheless, you can see right away that most drugs fail in the pipeline. The bioplausibility that a, even a promising biologic intervention improves patient outcomes is low. I think that's just a fact of biology. It's why biology is hard. So there are a lot of people who believe their intervention defies this, that they alone are using parachutes. And in fact, many of them congregate in certain fields, like the procedural fields, because procedural fields and surgical fields, they've always kind of exempted themselves from lots of regulatory bureaucracy, and they've always been able to do sort of many things that they feel work, should work, ought to work, and they really haven't had to be subject to an external regulatory authority demanding that they prove that those interventions work. Okay, 
Fast forward to 2003. In 2003, the BMJ published the first parachute study, and this was a systematic review of randomized controlled trials of the parachute to prevent gravitational challenge. And guess what? Gordon Smith and Jill Pell, two OBGYN doctors, found. They found that when you look for randomized trials of the parachute for falling out of an airplane from 10,000 feet or more, you would find no such randomized controlled trials. And in fact, there are none. So for you people out there who keep asking for randomized trials of, say, the IVC filter or stenting stable coronary disease or stenting renal artery stenosis in, in the setting of hypertension, you know, if you want a randomized trial of these things, what do you want next? A randomized trial of the parachute? Get out of here. Only a fool would want a randomized trial of the parachute. But if you are such a fool, why don't you sign up? We'll be happy to have a double-blind, randomized, crossover trial of the parachute. And that was what they said, and they wrote in 2003 in the British Medical Journal. And it was in the Christmas issue, which is a humorous issue. And indeed, it is a funny article. You will chuckle when you read it. But you'll stop chuckling when you realize that there are a lot of people out there who weren't laughing. They were taking it quite seriously. They saw in the parachute paper an example of perfect branding. See, many years ago, as part of the Affordable Care Act negotiations, there was a provision that every person over a certain age would have a discussion about their end-of-life wishes with their primary care doctor, I believe. Um, and this was demonized by one side of the political spectrum as a quote-unquote death panel. And that label death panel, it really did stick, even though it was probably completely inappropriate. Because asking someone what they would like at the end of their life, that's just called a reasonable thing to ask somebody, and that's not called running a death panel. But by labeling it death panel, what they've done is branded it as a death panel, and it was politically a hot potato, and it's something that got jettisoned, and we don't have it today. Uh, we don't have special reimbursement for that, um, for that act. And listeners can correct me if anything about that is incorrect. Um, but uh, I think what's there, what's true there and something true in politics, which is that if you brand something effectively, if you come up with a phrase like compassionate conservative or something like that that polls very well, you can actually persuade a lot of people because a lot of people don't think about an issue beyond that summary quote, beyond that little nugget. And that's why many people are persuaded by this sort of rhetoric, this branding. And I think the parachute paper, the original 2003 paper, was a great example of that branding. By pointing out that there are no randomized trials of the parachute, an intervention that is of indisputable benefit, Gordon Smith and Jill Pell invited the slippery slope of comparisons. Why, if there's no randomized trial of a parachute, surely you wouldn't ask me to do a randomized sham controlled trial of stenting chronic stable angina because only a fool would ask for a randomized trial of the parachute and only a fool would ask me to test something that I know for sure works. Because after all, angina is caused by an occlusion to the coronary artery, and when you stent it open, there's more blood flow, and the patient themselves will tell you they feel better. What more do you want, you EBM pedant? Well, unfortunately, that randomized trial was eventually run. It was the Orbita study, and it was negative for the primary endpoint. So, what's the difference here? The parachute analogy was always very bad and corrosive for medicine because nothing or nearly nothing in medicine has a 99.999% absolute risk reduction on short-term endpoint that's dichotomous and as important as mortality. In fact, if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, there are just a few case reports of people surviving. If you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, my former resident, Michael Hayes, found that seven per 10,000 jumps have fatalities, but otherwise you're a-okay. So the parachute is an intervention with a 99.99999% absolute risk reduction in all-cause mortality in a very short period of time from an intervention with a pathophysiology uh, slowing the arrest from the sky that is visualizable and makes perfect sense. 
The causal pathway of falling from an airplane is very, very simple. But the analogy falls flat in medicine for a few reasons. The first reason is we have very few things in medicine that have a 99.999% absolute risk reduction on an important dichotomous endpoint. It doesn't mean that's zero, but it's very few. And in fact, maybe later we can talk about what those are, if any, and how they've been cataloged over the years. Um, but we have very few of those, rest assured. One piece of evidence that would suggest that is the paper by Thiago Pereira and colleagues in JAMA, which showed that only one in 80,000 practices in all of Cochrane had a very large effect size defined as an odds ratio of five or greater, and that was ECMO for neonates in respiratory distress. So they're very few and they're far between. The second thing that was wrong with the parachute analogy is that most of what we deal with in biomedicine does not have a causal pathway that is oh so simple as falling from the sky. When you fall out of an airplane, and if you hit the ground and die, there is one causal pathway that led to your death. There's not two, there's no redundant pathway, there's no duplication, there's no epigenetics, there's no genome. You don't need to sequence the genome to know the causal pathway there. You're not gonna find anything by sequencing a genome. In contrast, when you think about most biological processes like hypertension, like diabetes, like renal artery stenosis, like atherosclerosis, these are complex multifactorial pathway processes like cancer. Interdicting any one part and thinking you will solve the entire problem is probably naive at best. The second thing, most effect sizes in biomedicine are marginal to modest effect sizes. That was shown again in the paper by Pereira by, and Yonides, um, and that's been shown over and over again. And what are randomized trials good for? Randomized trials are essential. They're perhaps the only thing that allow you to separate a modest from marginal true effect from the bias and noise and belief that there ought to be an effect. If you look at retrospective observational real world data, you will so easily succumb to unmeasured confounding or confounding by indication. You may think you see a causal relationship that is merely due to artifacts of patient selection because after all, doctors and patients select treatment in the real world based on a host of reasons that have nothing to do with flipping a coin, that they're not really random. And it's very hard to tell causal pathway from these studies. Okay, so the Gordon Smith and Jill Pell paper came out. It was very funny. It was used for many years to bludgeon, to criticize the need for randomized trials. How do I know that? I know that because my resident, Michael Hayes, he went through every reference to that parachute paper. And there were 822 plus references by the time we went through it, which was a couple years ago. Um, we excluded articles that weren't in English or that had to do with veterinary medicine. As you might expect, they were also more than happy to use that analogy. We included dental medicine and we included biomedicine. And uh, we found hundreds and hundreds of articles that cited that Gordon Smith and Jill Pell article. And what did they say? The vast majority said something like, well, as we all know, you can't have a randomized trial for a parachute, and certainly you couldn't have a randomized trial for this or that, or you couldn't have a randomized trial in general, or randomized trials are limited, or they're stupid, or they have flaws. They maligned, they criticized, they were used to trump up against randomized trials. And after all, they're very, it's very clever branding. It's the death panel, uh, so to speak. It's a clever nickname uh, for why you can't have a randomized trial. And in fact, on the wards, I have heard it so many times over the years. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence is another sort of, you know, thing people say, to which I always say, well, yeah, but the pretest probability an intervention works in the real world is likely very low. For instance, 
of all the candidate compounds in a field like, say, oncology, less than 6% of them actually come to the market. The rest of those were also biologically plausible, but they failed with empirical testing. Most of biology is failure. There are many more ways of being dead than being alive. It's a lot harder to make someone better off than it is to make them worse off. That's a lot easier. And for that reason, randomization is essential to separate what actually makes people better off from the things you merely believe ought to, but you don't know for sure and they don't really. And that's why the seminal trials in biomedicine have been ones that put dogma on its head. So Michael Hayes went through all of these references, and we published in the Canadian Medical Journal Open that most medical practices were not like parachutes. He found only 35 people were willing to name names. These were people willing to say, look, just like the parachute, my intervention is also a parachute, and this is what it is. And he found a few interesting things. One, of that 35, 18 of them had already been tested in randomized trials. And if you had been tested in randomized trials, about a third were positive, a third had mixed results, and a third were negative, which is roughly comparable to all randomized trials ever run. That's a paper by Jubegovich in Nature. Um, so that was the first sobering thing. The next thing he found, only half of these parachute analogies um, used a dichotomous important endpoint, like death or live birth. And the other half used an endpoint like the need to have some root canal or some or change in A1C or some surrogate lesser endpoint, which clearly is not a parachute level endpoint. So those were the two conclusions he found from that paper, that most medical practices were not parachutes, that people love to abuse this analogy. Enter the new paper. The new paper is a randomized controlled trial of wearing the parachute or a backpack with nothing in it, and the authors tested it and they found that there were no deaths in either arm. Um, finally, the parachute trial has been done. But of course, the caveat here is that participants were only able to be randomized for falls of, say, um, half a meter or a meter, about three foot, four foot falls, very short falls. In other words, when the parachute was actually tested in a randomized trial, it didn't work at all, lo and behold. So what's the metaphor here? The metaphor here, of course, is that when you see randomized trials of interventions that everyone believes ought to work, like stenting renal artery stenosis and hypertension in the astral and coral trials, and that trial is negative, it's probably because we didn't put the sickest patients on the trial. We didn't run the trial in the people in whom we really thought the intervention worked. We withheld them from the intervention. And in fact, that's something you hear all the time about courage, about astral, about coral, about these seminal negative trials in biomedicine. Now, why is this really a foolish counter-argument, it's that when somebody does a randomized trial of stenting and they find that it doesn't improve MIR mortality or it doesn't improve anginal symptoms on a treadmill test like Orbita showed, the easy thing to do is to say, well, your randomized trial didn't do X, Y, or Z. That's the foolish or trivial thing to do. The hard thing to do, but the thing that any intellectually honest person would do, is to run the randomized trial in the population in which you think there is a benefit and prove there is a benefit. If you think stenting renal artery stenosis and hypertension would benefit someone if they also have flash flood pulmonary edema, nothing stops you from running that trial and proving that that is true. But we now have six randomized trials of stenting renal artery stenosis. This was a billion dollar a year industry paid for by CMS alone. And and all of those trials and the pooled analysis is totally negative. So what do you want from other people? 
The burden of proof in biomedicine cannot be to show that an intervention does not work under any circumstances. That's an unfalsifiable claim. The burden of proof in biomedicine is to show that under some circumstances, an intervention does work. And that can only be done for modest or marginal effect size interventions with randomization. We need more, not less randomized trials, and we need better ones. So, the parachute randomized control trial will further the agenda of the original parachute paper, which is to denigrate, criticize, and utterly disparage, I think, randomized trials in evidence-based medicine. You will see this paper being used to explain why Courage was negative, why Astral is negative, why the Shiva trial, which is a randomized control trial of molecular profiling of tumor types, was negative. Well, because after all, they didn't look at the right pathways and they didn't look at the right drugs. So let me ask somebody who feels that way, of which I know there must be many people of this podcast, Oncology Podcast, who feel that way. So Shiva was a bad trial. It wasn't perfect. And I'm not going to argue with you about that, but let me ask you this. So can you name what was a randomized trial that randomized people to molecular profiling or not and actually showed a PFS advantage? What was the name of that study? Hmm, I'll see. Oh, it doesn't exist. Uh, what was the name of that study of renal artery stenting that showed it actually decreased rates of subsequent flash flood pulmonary edema? Oh, huh, it doesn't exist. And what was the name of that trial of stenting stable coronary disease that was sham controlled that actually shows it increased exercise time by about two minutes? Oh, it doesn't exist. See. The proponents of these practices have been gutless, and they, ha they and it's easy to be gutless when you can make money hand over fist by simply deploying the intervention without having the burden to show the intervention works. Um, it's a lot harder to actually generate the credible data. So, what's my real criticism here? I have to say it. This time, it's the BMJ. It's a fail. The BMJ is a great journal. It's a very great journal. And uh, they do a lot of things I really like. Um, they experiment with peer review. They're tough on financial conflicts of interest. They're a great journal. And I've only had good things to say about them on this podcast. But they have failed here. They failed because they are only presenting one side of this parachute analogy. Um, one can think about if you wanted to present the other side, which is you take an intervention like homeopathy or prayer or something like that, and you show that in a randomized trial with a double drug run-in period of prayer, um, and one group also got valsartan at 320 milligrams, and the other group uh, got um, enalapro by itself, prayer plus valsartan outperformed uh, enalapro by itself, therefore prayer and valsartan is a standard of care called in God we tresto. Um, see, you know, they, they could play the game that way. They could show how a humorous satirical article could be used to trivialize a marginal benefit um, as an artifact of the trial design. But they don't do that. They're using the satirical article to show why randomized trials are foolish, unnecessary, and when they are done, they've tested a triviality so they don't apply to your practice. That's the mistake of the BMJ. They are allowing very successful branding to come out in their pages. Um, that's bad. And I, I know on Twitter the debate became, what do the authors really mean by the parachute study? But that doesn't interest me much at all. And perhaps in some future episode, we'll get some of the authors to talk about it. But it doesn't interest me at all because, you know, and I believe there's a quote of some professor, which is, I don't care what the author said, I care what they wrote. Um, it doesn't matter what the author believe the interpretation of their study ought to be. The interpretation is simply going to be this because this is the most logical and plausible extension of the analogy. Similarly, I've heard some people also say that you did need some control studies for parachutes because who knew if the square one was better than the circle one, the one with the hole in it. You know, you had to experiment with dummies to figure out how the parachute should work and open and all that stuff. And I also want to say that those people are also missing the point. 
the parachute analogy is not about twisting the parachute analogy to fit biomedicine. The parachute is something that has an intuitive and obvious appeal with the average person on the street. And the biomedical analogy is to show the average person that we also have parachutes in our field. You don't need to change their mind about parachutes. You need to show them that this analogy is defunct, is not right. See, so that's the failure there. It's not, you, can, you shouldn't twist the parachute analogy to fit the biomedicine. Uh, you should actually cut the analogy altogether, I think is the cleanest thing to do. So bottom line. Bottom line is I think we have to be very careful about the messaging about evidence-based medicine. We live at a time where many people believe that it is a bad thing to be put on the control arm of a randomized control trial, that that is somehow inadequate or bad care. Um, that is factually incorrect, and that's been shown by Jubegovich and colleague, which shows that many times randomized trials do fail, about half the time, in which case you probably didn't want to be on that expensive, costly, perhaps even harmful intervention. The reason we're running randomized trials is we genuinely don't know whether the intervention works. That's why we're doing it. We need to do more of them. Interventions that have gained widespread prominence in the era before randomization must be subjected to randomized control trials. They can be incremental. So think about how Bernie Halstead did radical Halstead mastectomy. Bernie Halstead didn't believe the radical Halstead mastectomy was a good idea. First, he randomized people to radical Halstead, modified Halstead, and mastectomy. He showed that there was no difference there. Then he did mastectomy versus lumpectomy versus lumpectomy plus RT. And he showed that you'd probably get away with lumpectomy or lumpectomy plus RT, depending on how you feel about local failure. So he did that incrementally. And similarly, there is almost nothing in biomedicine that could not be subjected to incrementally incremental randomization, even if you believe it does work, because very few things are a parachute. So let's come back to that. Paul Glazius and colleagues um, circulate a list of things that are universally accepted to work, lacking randomized control trials, like a liver transplant for fulminant hepatic failure. And this list has been circulated far and wide, and there's maybe about 100 to 200 things on this list, which is good. And those are things we'll all agree that probably really are highly effective things, and it probably could not be subjected to randomized trials. But the truth is we do several hundred thousand things in biomedicine, so this list is actually very few and far between. Most of the analogizing to parachutes in biomedicine is wrong. And the last thing I'd say, once upon a time, people said you'd never see a randomized trials of appendectomy versus high-dose antibiotics for appendicitis. And I guess I would say I still believe there's some room to interpret the results, but there's no question that we have performed at least four such randomized trials. So people believing that they're not possible, that's no assurance that they really aren't possible. Every bias in biomedicine is to believe that costly, invasive, novel interventions must improve outcomes, that bias is shared by the people who do them and get that experiential-based reinforcement, that anecdote-based reinforcement. It's shared by the people who profit hand over fist from them. It's shared by the manufacturers of these products, by everyone launching their own novel product, hoping to get rich quick in this modern world. It's shared by everyone. The few people out there who share some skepticism are people who have studied the history of medical science and people who understand evidence and understand that just because it's bioplausible doesn't mean it will work. In fact, they often fail. And if you really want to prove that you are offering something better than snake oil, you need to conduct a clinical trial to prove that under some circumstances, you do that. And then the next question is, under how many circumstances, for how many people, and at what price, and do the costs outweigh the benefits? That's the next 
next question. But if you haven't established fundamental efficacy in a clinical trial, you need to get out that door because your garbage product is most likely garbage, and that's based on every bit of pretest probability there is in the field. So parachute analogy fail, most interventions biomedicine, modest to marginal effect size. And now, on that positive note, Andre Mansour. So I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Dr. Andre Mansour. Dr. Mansour is assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing hospitalist. He's also a preeminent educator. And he's out with a new book called Frameworks for Internal Medicine. Andre, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, uh, Vinay. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So this book comes in just under 700 pages. It is a monster of a book. It is a big book. I was, uh, when you put a book in your hand like this and you feel the heft of it, what is it? It's about four pounds? How much does a clock in it? Yeah, I think a couple pounds, two, three pounds. <laughs> two, three pounds. According to the Amazon website, but I don't know how accurate that is. That means that you've been working really hard on this. Yeah, I mean, six years, you know, um, and uh, it, it really was a, a labor of love. Um, well, Love may be a, a bit strong, uh, maybe a, a labor of like, a labor of or, like. or a labor of tolerance, really. Or like um, all long relationships, it has mixed, em- you go through different phases. At do. times you love and at oh, times you hate, it must be the case. That is so true. Yeah, there were times that I, I thought I was really doing something great and other times where I wanted to throw it out the window and, and never look at it again. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely a long, a long process. And that was probably the hardest um, part of writing this was... Um, you know, just the time away from uh, life in general, the time away from family and friends, and you know the uh, the solitude that you find yourself in for months at a time. The writer uh, solitude. Yeah, yeah. And you worked on this for for years and for hours and hours a week. Yeah, um, for six years in total. Actually, June of 2012. You know, looking back at, at my uh, files on my computer, it's June June of, of 2012 was the you know very beginning. And, uh, and then, you know, wrap things up just, you know, a month or two ago of this year. So a little over six years, actually. Um, and yeah, it was a grueling process, man. I mean, you know, I, I found myself in a vicious cycle where, um, and, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I mean, we, we have a full-time job and right. this is something that we're mm-hmm. doing on top of that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I found myself in this, in this cycle where the uh, book became a break from work mm-hmm. and then work became a break from from the book mm-hmm. I mean literally mm-hmm. when I wasn't in the hospital I was essentially at home working on this nonstop and uh, and you know it's it's funny as a hospitalist we do seven eight day stretches mm-hmm. and normally you come in you know at the at the peak of your of your you know of your health because right. or energy you've, you've level just rested up. you've just rested yeah for me it was a complete opposite where <laughs> we're you know day you'd re- eight you'd rejuvenate yeah, on service absolutely yeah so so i was feeling pretty good by day eight because you've been working so hard yeah. when you're off yeah that's right now let me if you allow me let me tell readers a little bit about you and a little bit about the book so about you your uh you did your internal medicine you, well, first you did your medical school at Oregon Health and Science University. You did your internal medicine residency right here, and you were the chief resident. And in the book, this is a this is a really masterful book, and I'm gonna I try to explain like how I how I think about it. This is a book that has like three intended audiences, or maybe at least one, of course, being people who want to get better at diagnostic medicine, 
which is the hardest thing to teach in all of medicine. The second audience, I think, are people who think they are good teachers of, of diagnostic medicine, the educators. And the third audience is this particular group of people, chief residents, who I think they, it, it should be the obligatory book of chief residents. It's really the book, I mean, uh, it should be the obligatory book of everybody, but especially chief residents, I think they could, they could get a lot from it. And what, do you, what is this book, Frameworks, of, Frameworks for Internal Medicine? How do I think about it? What you've done is you've picked a lot of common, either chief complaints or signs or symptoms, uh, things we'll see on the laboratory or perhaps something that somebody will complain about, and you break down your framework for how you think about that, that entity. How do you break it down in your mind? And your goal of this framework is really to not miss anything. It's so that in your mind, when I tell you about a patient with anemia, or I tell you about a patient with chest pain, you can already have a framework how you think about it so you're not gonna forget I should look for a rash for shingles and you're also not gonna forget I should check troponins for MI. So, and you do this for, I, I didn't count how many, must be like 40, 50 topics? 50, there's 50, 50 chapters. Topics, yeah. 50 chapters. Um, and it's not just the framework. So that I thought the framework would have been good enough. That that's a good book. But you go beyond it because as you do, you present vignettes and then you take the reader through the framework and you explain as you're thinking about this, what are the relevant laboratory tests you order? How do you look at it? What is a clinical presentation that comes to mind? Now shift gears and now you're thinking a little bit of non-cardiac chest pain, like for instance, your chest pain chapter, cardiac, non-cardiac. What do you think about cardiac? Um, uh, what do you need to know about STEMI and NSTEMI? What about non-ischemia, cardiac causes of pain? Um, it, so, so, so what do I wanna say here is, I guess a couple things. One. The hardest thing we teach in all of medicine is also the thing that we've been doing for thousands of years, which is making a diagnosis. Um, the reason that's so difficult is that it's not like treating stage one lung cancer. You don't go into the textbook and find an algorithm. But at the same time, if you do it a lot and you think critically about it, you have to develop some framework in your mind for how you approach that problem. Um, you're not gonna get billion dollar companies running many, many randomized trials to help you out. So you have to do this you know, with your own wit and with your own knowledge of the available evidence. And what you've done is you started doing this, I understand from the book, as a resident, or you were a resident in the auditorium, you saw the chief resident do this once and it blew your mind. That's right. And yeah. then you started doing this. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that? How did you, yeah. how did you start collecting these frameworks? Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you for the for the kind words. I'm I'm glad you like the book and, and find value in it. I'm, you know, um, this this was sort of born out of necessity for me. Uh, this, this sort of concept. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, going back, you know, one of the things that I love about medicine is the um, is the uh, noon report or the morning report or case report conference. And uh, I loved it as a student. Loved it as a resident. Uh, for you know, as an intern, and uh, I never really thought too much about how this, how the report was run or how it was led. I, you know, I sort of took that for granted. And it wasn't until I was a second year resident when I, you know, was offered one of the chief resident positions by uh, Seema Desai, and I was, you know, overjoyed by that, and I was very excited to, to you know, um, come into that role. But uh, case report conference was never the same for me after that. And the reason is because I was, I became excessively worried about running this conference. And, you know, most of the time these things go pretty well because the audience is participatory. And actually in that situation, it's not hard at all to run this conference. Mm -hmm. um, the problem arises when the audience is a little bit on the quieter side. Mm -hmm. And I've mm -hmm. seen these things go sideways, you know, when the, when the leader is sort of standing up there in, in front of the room and, and doesn't have a way of, of leading conference forward when the audience is quiet. 
And, uh, and I thought, you know, I, I really don't want to find myself in that situation. Mm. So mm-hmm. I started to strategize about how I could avoid that. And, you know, so I started really paying attention to the conferences thereafter and, and sort of, uh, you know, what, what problems were at the center of discussion. It really, at these conferences, it really does boil down to one, one problem that's being discussed or a differential that's built around one problem. So, you know, I, I sort of started to pay attention and, and it really was 20 to 25 you know, entities or problems that really um, were commonly recurring. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, things like anemia or chest pain or shortness of breath or hypoxemia, hyponatremia. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Labor- right. Yeah. So I thought, OK, if I if I had an, a, an approach to these problems right. um, in that situation where the audience is quiet, then I'll be able to lead it forward. So I started to create these frameworks. And by the way, this is not a you know, this is I, I, I would love to be able to take credit for this idea. But as we all know, uh, the concept of a framework is not new. It's been around for a long time. We all are familiar with you know, the framework for thinking about AKI, you know, pre-renal, right. intrarenal, post-renal or, or vasculitis, small, medium, large. So it wasn't a, a brand new concept, um, but I started to create these and compile them. And sooner or later, I had, you know, I had a, a accumulated sort of a, a wealth of these frameworks and I started to use them to teach on the medical ward. Mm-hmm. And the learners on my teams really loved them. And I sort of knew that I was onto something when one of the students came up to me and said, hey, hey, you know, uh, these frameworks that you use to teach us, what, what book do you get these from? Because I want to buy it. Right. Um, and then and you said no book. I said just, you know, uh, you know, give me a couple, give me six years. <laughs> <laughs> give me a few years. So I guess, um, let me just, for the listener's sake, you know, many of them will be familiar with the Internal Medicine Morning Report, but just for the ones who aren't, what is this? I would say of every single conference in all of the hospital or medical school, this is the single best learning opportunity there is, period. I would say that, period. And what is it? Somebody comes in and they say, I was on call three weeks ago and I admitted a 57-year-old gentleman who came in complaining of shortness of breath. Go. And the audience has to go from there. They ask the questions of the doctor the way they would ask the questions of the patient. But hopefully the doctor has collected all of the information, all the laboratory information. So how long has it been going on? When did it start? What was your baseline health? What were your prior medical problems? What was, you know, they, 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 they interrogate the speaker. And the goal of it is, is to show that how do you think through it? Can we all think through it together and talk about how we think through these cases? And you're right. There's some topics that everyone is just jumping out of their seat. Um, Medical diagnosis is a combination of like pattern recognition, but also when you don't recognize the pattern or the pattern doesn't fit elegantly, you have to think of some way in your mind you organize diagnoses and how do you approach this clinical question. So many times, as you point out, it gets, they get stuck. And when they get stuck, usually chief residents go to the board and they write, okay, we have ascites. When we have ascites, there's a gradient. And here's what the gradient means if it's less than 1.1 and greater than 1.1, the SAG gradient, okay? Um, and what you've done is you've collected that for 50 different topics. Um, I noticed that there you've had expert reviewers in every subject matter. Was that important to you? Absolutely, and, and actually that's one of the benefits of, of being at OHSU for as long as I have is I've built these relationships with you know, a lot of the subspecialists here where I, you know, could go to them and say, hey, I've, you know, I've got this, uh, I've got this section of, uh, uh, you know, this project I'm working on, and, and they were more than happy to, to help with it. And it was just, it was really great to be able to collaborate with some of the people that, you know, I've, I've worked with since I was a student. And uh, actually, one of the reviewers, probably the one that uh, is just personally, I think, coolest for me was uh, Fahim Sharif, who, who reviewed the neurology section. And the reason Fahim is, uh, I think, to me, um, just on a personal level, 
uh, a great person to have reviewed was because he was my, you know, he was a neurology intern when I was a chief resident. So, you know, and I remember telling him at the time, I said, hey, you know, Fahim, I think we passed each other on the sky bridge or something like that. And we'd always stop and, and talk. And I said, hey, I'm working on this thing and I want you to be, you're going to be the, the reviewer for the neurology section. And, you know, we sort of laughed and we kind of had, we laughed a, about it. And, you know, sure enough, two, three years later, you know, I'm knocking <laughs> on his door. Because he was and, an intern back and now he's an attendant. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I got him involved and it was just great because he, you know, and Fahim is one of the nicest individuals you'll ever meet and just smart as, as it comes. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so to be able to work with him, somebody that, you know, I, I was, I sort of, you know, was in a, a leadership position uh, when we initially interacted uh, mm-hmm. when uh, I was a chief and he was an intern and then just kind of be able to uh, see him grow. And then, and then, and all of a sudden he is telling me, okay, well you need to reword this because this is wrong. And he is now leading me through uh-huh. the neuro section. I thought ah, that was just, it really kind of came full circle. And, and that was, um, you know, the, the section that I, uh, I, I most appreciated on a personal level, but everybody really, I mean, uh, you know, Tom, uh, yeah. Deloria across the hall, right. you know, worked on the heme section and, uh, and so it was just, it was, it was fun. It was a collaborative effort. And but, it was, but you, you took the first stab. You had already given him something to work off of. That's right. Um, you know, I, I you wrote the whole thing. I wrote the whole thing. Jeez, um, and, uh, I did, uh, collaborate, um, with, um, Margo Chase. She's a, mm-hmm. a, a, a PA in our group. And, uh, you know, when it came time to editing, editing the, the manuscript or the, or the book, um, uh, I realized that I didn't really have that resource of medical editor. And, and so I, I sort of, um, you know, uh, reached out to Margot because, you know, for 10 years before she became a PA, she was uh, an editor. Uh, it wasn't medical in nature. It was actually, I think, a construction magazine or something of, of, that, of that nature. But she was an editor for 10 years before she became a PA. And so, you know, now with her medical knowledge and, and editorial knowledge, yeah, it's the perfect person. it was a perfect combination. And so she got, she became involved. And she was, was sort your of technical the, editor. She was a medical editor of, of the book. And it was so much fun to work with her. She was amazing and just, you know, made things better. And, and it was, it was great. You must have had the frameworks in your mind for many of these topics because that's, that's what you do. But writing the vignette, writing all this stuff, um, the, the framing of the questions that come to mind um, as you go through the book, that was all new for the book. That's right, and and um, yeah. So each chapter does start off with a case, and and what's what's cool about this book for me, uh, one of the cool uh, parts of it personally is that um, you know all these cases cases are real, um, and these are these are cases that I was personally involved in, and so um, it sort of reads as a you know diary of sorts of, of my career uh, mm-hmm. to this point, which is just on a personal level very very cool, um, and uh, and you know you're right. So throughout, so as the chapter progresses. I mean, it starts with sort of the top of the framework and then, you know, eventually you get to the full framework of whatever topic it is. But in between, it's sort of, you know, the chapters yeah. are peppered with learning points and, and things uh, that, you know, teaching pearls. And those were all things that I am interested in, you know, and think are important, um, uh, you know. And so I was able to focus, for example, on physical examination, which is one of my passions in medicine. And so a lot of the questions are going to be geared around you know, uh, you know, if the, if, if the problem shows up, uh, heart failure, okay, what are the physical findings of heart failure? Right. And, um, I think you've so, had the sensitivity of S3 and the specificity of S3, for instance. Right. That's right. Um, what was I going to say? I, I guess, I guess I, there's so many things that come to my mind, but one thing I want to say is that your project is, I, I, the thing, I mean, it's an ambitious project. 
you remind me of Carl Ove Nausgaard, who writes his autobiography at 2,000, uh, you know, 2,000 pages in six volumes or something like that. And, you know, because I guess, why do I think it's ambitious? I mean, I mean, I know, I mean, I, I've had the chance to write a book, you know, so I know it's, it's not easy. I mean, it, you know, people, it's easy to criticize somebody who's written a book, but it's a lot harder to write a book, especially because, as you know, you're there by yourself a lot of the time. You hear only your own voice. And I had the luxury of, I got to write it with, you know, a very good friend and colleague and, and mentor to me, Dr. Adam Sifu. Uh, so we at least had someone to bounce it off of. And my book comes in, you know, nowhere near, you know, the size and scope of your book. So, you know, you're out there for year after year and you're doing this. And I just, um, it, the only analogy I can think of is it's like an explorer out to sea. You, you may not even know if you're going to hit land. Um, and yet you had the, you know, the tenacity and perseverance to stick with it. You know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because in the beginning, as you noted, a lot of these frameworks are, are well established. So, you know, it was relatively easy to kind of um, fine tune the framework for, for AKI anemia. or oh, yeah. for anemia. Right. Some of, you know, and I, I was kind of worried as I was progressing that, you know, and it was becoming a book yeah. that, I, you know, I needed it to be expansive and cover all topics in medicine, um, or at least the most common things. And so I was worried initially that, gosh, you know, is this, is this going to, is this going to end at some point where I can't come up with a good framework for a problem? And I got to be honest, it, that never happened. Oh, you, um, with, with enough thought and time, any problem you think can break out into some framework. Absolutely. And, you know, these things, and you touched on this earlier, I, you know, these frameworks are great for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, so first of all, you know, how do I see this, uh, this book being utilized? And, and you're right. It's really for a couple different audiences, whether you're a learner or an educator. So for learners, there's a couple ways they might use this. One would just be kind of the leisurely sort of study time at home or in a coffee shop where, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they've got a patient who comes in with heart failure or right. they've got, um, you know, their boards that they're studying for or just the general clerkship and they want to, you know, just leisurely study or read about something. So they're going to read about heart failure and they're probably going to start with a case and sort of go through that chapter. And hopefully they'll come away with it uh, from it with a sort of an approach to heart failure, but also having learned some pearls along the way. Right. The second application for learners would be uh, sort of that that real time, um, you know, you're in the hospital and somebody comes in with AKI and um, and, you, you know, you just quickly reference the framework to make sure that you know your approach to that problem is sound and you're not forgetting parts of the differential diagnosis. Right. You know, I've become sort of reliant on these frameworks actually. I right. you know, just last week I admitted a patient with with diarrhea and the framework was really helpful to sort of you know, help steer me down the right direction. And uh, and and you also touched on this which is that um, I like to create a, a, a differential diagnosis, you know, whether it's in this conference setting or whether it's in the hospital, I almost never interview a patient one time or examine them once. I always go back, collect my thoughts, build a differential diagnosis and say, you know, uh, heart failure is on the differential. I didn't ask about orthopnea or weight gain. Right. I didn't examine and I didn't look specifically or listen specifically for an S3 or, uh, you know, so it's always, um, you know, going back and forth from your, from your differential back to the patient and extracting more information. So I think, um, you know, those are the main two ways to utilize this book for a learner. And then of course there's the educator's appendix in the back that, um, sort of introduces this, this again, not a new concept. We've all, we all know about chalk talks, but, um, to me, you know, using the, the whiteboard to teach is sort of the best modality in the hospital for a variety of reasons. And so it kind of develops strategies for maximizing the effectiveness of a chalk talk. And, and, and so it, I'm and then you come know. to that. Yeah. That, that I thought was just a, well, I want to come back to that because I think it's just such a great topic. Um, it, diagnostic medicine. Do you think you're, you're a great diagnostician? 
are you like a Gurpreet Dawalia from uh, uh, UCSF? Are you are you like that? Uh, what was her name? She is a professor emeritus at University of San Diego. Uh, one of these people who go to stump the professor, and uh, and people just throw things at you, and you can't be stumped. Is that is that your is diagnostic acumen like in your wheelhouse? You know, I I, I wish I, I really? wish I could say so. I you know. Uh, uh, Goop is a phenomenal. I mean, I had a chance to see him at Legacy a couple months ago, sort of, you know, doing his thing, and it was just remarkable to watch. Yeah. Um, I think you know, uh, Pete Sullivan, uh, colleague and, and friend of mine, always talks about Faith Fitzgerald. Yeah, Faith Fitzgerald. That's her name. Yeah, and she was supposed to. Be, oh, she was remarkable. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I, I wish I could say that, I, and I, you know, I hope to aspire to that, at, at, you know, someday. I mean, I think that's just remarkable what they're able to do. Um, um, they're yeah, they're the real Doctor House. It, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But you still work at it. Yeah, definitely. And, and um, you know, it's funny because y- you would think that having written this and having gone over it a thousand times each chapter that I would have these things sort of memorized in my mind. That's not that's not true. I still reference them and and I, I and I still have to kind of remind myself. Um, but they have helped me. Um, you know, as I mentioned with that case of, of diarrhea last week, it, you know, it's a ended up, you know, of course, the framework for diarrhea separates things into, you know, secretory, osmotic, et cetera. And, um, you know, one of the features in this case was that it was happening when she was fasting or not eating, happening at night. And so it kind of steered me towards a secretory process. And mm-hmm. um, this case is still evolving, by the way, but, uh, you know, right there in the framework is neuroendocrine tumor. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, the other feature of this case was that her uh, blood glucose was being becoming harder and harder to control over the last year or so. And so, yeah, putting that together and seeing glucagonoma right there in the framework really allowed me to kind of um, kind of go down that pathway. And, and at this point, it's possible that she does have a neuroendocrine tumor. Um, it, it's still we're still waiting for the uh, for some of the, uh, the levels, but the chromogranin is quite elevated into the thousands. And uh, and her gastrin level is actually elevated above uh, 2000 as well. Um, so oh, we'll wow. see. We'll see what it what what comes of it. But yeah, so I sort of use these things in the hospital all the time to kind of help me. So I guess um, you bring up this interesting point. Um, the the one thing that people always are often get faulted for in diagnostic medicine is early closure. Early closure happens to those of us who think we know a little bit, uh, but don't know everything. And we get, you know, so comfortable in the fact that most of medicine is pattern recognition. Patient with heart failure comes in shortness of breath, it's heart failure exacerbation, right? But it's that part of medicine that isn't pattern recognition, that it's so important to have a framework that you can at least look at. Maybe you're right. You probably are right with your gut feeling. But if you look through this list and like, could it be any of these other things that I'm potentially missing? That goes a long way. And, and the other thing you said that's just such a gem that I feel like um, just gets doesn't get taught to trainees the way I wish it were, which is you don't have to do everything at the one moment. You don't, an H&P is not just a one-time thing. You can go back, and, and the best part of being a resident is you're not just down the hall. You can go back and forth and back and forth as you work on your thought process for this person many times over the night, and then you're getting something else. You're getting a little bit of the influence of time on the condition, which can tell you a lot as well. Let's talk a little bit about the stuff at the end about being an educator, which I thought was just phenomenal. Boy, you give seven things to think about when you give a chalk talk. Okay, so I guess let me tell listeners a little bit. What is a chalk talk? There, no matter how busy it gets on a busy internal medicine service, there will always be these pockets of time where you're waiting for a patient to come from the ER to the floor. Um, You've done a few things. You're waiting for a test result to come back. And you have this beautiful moment where it's the resident, the intern, maybe two or three medical students. 
it's 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 like one of those moments. It's the thing that you'll always remember for the rest of your training because in these moments, usually the resident says, "Let me tell you about how I think about X," and they give a brief talk. And um, as you said, the best talks you've ever, you'll ever hear are when somebody who's thought deeply about a topic will just go to a whiteboard and say, this is how I think about it. No slides, no PowerPoint, no nonsense. Just this is for the, how I think about this problem and here's why. And you can interrogate them and there's like five people in the audience. It's the most intimate part of medical education. If everything were like that, everyone would love everything about medical school. People wouldn't skip lectures like we read about, right? Um, what are your seven tips for how to do that well? Which I thought were just so good, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, you know, um, it, let's see if I can remember them. Mm. Actually, I may not be able to <laughs> see if we can pull it up. <laughs> you need a framework. They're so important that I can't remember them. Um, you know, uh, uh, so timeliness is the first one, yeah. and uh, that sort of gets at the idea that uh, you know, just att audience attention starts to wane after you know twenty, thirty minutes or so, and so it's just important to you know not go on uh, in in perpetuity when you give a talk. You really want to you know wrap things up within. 20, 25 minutes or so, if you can. Um, participation is critical. Um, you yes. know, using the Socratic method, I mean, you know, Confucius has a great quote, uh, you know, tell me, tell me something and I, and I'll likely forget, uh, show me and I may remember, involve mm -hmm. me and I'll never forget. And, you know, that is so true in medicine, um, you know, or, or really anything. You can read a book all day long about how to play basketball how to shoot a jump shot you know you can t you can read the you know ray allen's take on how to shoot a jumper and what he what his technique is until you go out there on the on the basketball court and actually you know go through the mechanics and, and involve yourself in the game you're never going to be able to learn how to sh how to shoot a jumper so you know the same is true in medicine and so that's why i think participation is so critical um in any lecture um, because it involves the audience and they're more likely to remember that information mm -hmm. one of the things you talked about was um all good chalk talks have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has to have an end. Sure. It has to have this arc to the talk. Um, trainees love when you take them through how you actually think about it, born out of your experience. I used to have one of these that I did for, you know, when I come to a code, um, how do I think through it? Um, how, do I, how do I make sense of it and, and, and know what to do? What are the other parts of the seven? So there's, uh, let's see here. Um, Verbalization, which just get, gets the fact that you can't write everything down. It has to be really a dialogue. Uh, reliability, so kind of hanging your hat on the, on the you know, um, sort of the, the hard findings in medicine, anemia, micros, you know, microcytic, normocytic, macrocytic. Uh, adaptability, and that's a critical one. Um, you know, the problem with PowerPoint is that it's a uh, very cookie cutter thing where it's a defined presentation for a defined audience in a defined oh, amount of time. Oh, you're so right. You're so right. How many times um, ha does a good lecturer start to give a lecture, look at the faces of the audience and realize, whoa, I've not shot this where I need to put it, you know? I'm overshot or undershot. And then the Chalk Talk allows you to just immediately change that, flip it over. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes your audience is diverse, you know, when you're giving a talk. Yes. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a medical student. Yes. There might be an intern, another resident. And so it allows you to sort of change, you know, I can take the same framework and give two entirely different talks. You know, if I'm talking to medical students and, and you know, heart failure shows up uh, on the framework, I might ask them about the physical findings of heart failure. An advanced medical resident might want to focus more on sort of the the advanced therapies for heart failure, LVADs, you know, balloon pumps, that kind of thing. And so you can take the same framework and deliver two completely different talks. So that adaptability is really critical and something that you don't get from a scripted presentation like PowerPoint or yeah. something like that. And that's the, the, the downside of PowerPoint. You know, um, 
I'm just going to make a, a shameless plug. On this podcast, sometimes I put out lectures I've given as an episode, and I've done that before on Medical Reversal. I recently gave that talk to a different audience. I had the same slide deck, but my slides are mostly pictures. But the talk is somewhat somewhat different. I think what I think is interesting here is that you will notice there's, there's a lot that's similar, but there's some things different that are playing to the particular um, group you're talking to. I think that's the hallmark of somebody who is a good lecturer who, well, not to say that I am, but to say that like somebody who at least tries to or aspires to be is that they actually try to make it relevant to the people you're talking to. This should be in the back pocket of every chief resident. It should be in everyone's pocket, but especially chief resident because they have to do this up there so many times for the year. That's right. And it sort of gets back to the reason why I, you know, I started to compile these things to begin with, which was that is that case conference that you lead as a chief resident. And, you know, there's there's kind of two ways to to maybe uh, kind of prevent that scenario in which you're up there in front of 20 or 30 people and, and you're sort of stuck and you can't move things forward. One would be to kind of find out the answer to the case before the case starts. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I tried that once and I really didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it is because it sort of you know, took the spontaneity out of the clinical reasoning, the or, sort of organic, natural course with which you Wait can approach that. As a chief, you would go in blind too? Oh, absolutely. You would go in blind, absolutely. really? Most chiefs I know, they want to know the answer yeah. before they go in, yeah. Yeah, it just to me, it's just more organic. Yeah. Um, and it was hard for me, if I knew the answer, to, to fake my way through- The differential. The differential, right. and it has to be organic. And and so, you know, that was one option. And, uh, you know, and it's still an option if you find that to work for you, then, then that's okay. Or at least maybe learn the problem. Um, that the that, That's one way to get around that, actually, is to maybe ask the presenter, okay, what's the problem that we're going to be discussing? And if you know that it's, you know, arthritis, well, then you can sort of, you know, beef up on that particular topic without actually knowing what the specific diagnosis is. So I think that, that may work for, for some. But yeah, I mean, I think having a framework when you're a chief resident, and even outside conference, you know, you do a lot of teaching as a chief. And, and I think that arming these uh, learners with kind of an approach to a problem is sort of the best thing that you can do for them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like, I remember as a, as a student, and it still happens to me, if somebody hands me an EKG and says, okay, you know, what's interpret the problem this. here, interpret yeah, this. You tell me, you know, whose EKG is this? Well, yeah, your mind sort of goes a little bit crazy at first until you realize, well, you know what, I have a system for approaching this, you know, right. rate, rhythm, axis, and so forth. And it, then this calm comes over you. And, you know, the same is true with these problems. I mean, there's 60 things that cause shortness of breath. There's, you know, 60 things that cause arthritis. If you have a way of approaching that problem, then, you know, you're, you're sort of, um, you're just better prepared and you just feel more comfortable. And uh, I think it's a great, a great thing for learners to be able to come away with. And so as a, as a chief resident, I think, I think it is important to have these types of uh, frameworks in mind and, and sort of, you know, to teach in that way is very helpful. I think um, if I could together a set of books that I think are invaluable for learning the art and science of medicine, here's what's in my tool bag. Evidence-Based Physical Diagnosis, Steve McGee. Love that book. I mean, that's a book that tells you the likelihood, positive negative likelihood ratio of almost every physical exam sign or symptom. Makes the good point that in neurology, those likelihood ratios are really strong in part because the sign is in fact the disease, pro the, the, the pathology itself, like that you can't move your arm, that's in fact the sign. Um, whereas in heart failure, the sign is something that's up or downstream of the, the causative pathophysiology problem. Um, I like for trainees um, a book that I think is complementary to your Symptom to Diagnosis by um, Scott Stern, Diane Alcorn, and, and Adam Sifu. Um, and that's a book about how for like the 30 or 40 most common chief complaints that come to a, you know, 
that a primary care office doctor sees, how do they think through those common chief complaints? And then I'm gonna put your book in there because your book is the book for, for I think somebody, medical student or resident, especially internal medicine resident, how do you think about these problems where there are many, many things and how do you not forget anything? What's your framework for approaching that? And and I think people can start with your book and they can build on it a little bit their own. I bet a bit different people would kind of say, okay, this is how I approach anemia slightly, you know, I, I like your framework, but I'm gonna make one little tweak. Um, and that's okay. I mean, that I think that, you know, they should be grateful that they have your book to start with because I didn't have that luxury. Um, because, but I think in scope, you know, yours is tremendous. I mean, not just because I, I make, you know, comment about how how big it is, uh, because it's a big book, but also because, you know, you really get into this. You really explain all the, all the intricacies of how you think about the different diagnoses. Now, one thing that I think your book is a little bit different than is, for those of us who do oncology, we get used to these like PDF flow sheets. What do I mean by that? It's like, oh, patient presents with lung nodule, one centimeter is found on, you know, whatever, it's chest CT. What do you do next? And you can literally click the arrows and it says, okay, order this test. If the test is positive, do this. If the test is negative, do this. Um, you You don't prescribe at that level. You're not taking us through a flow sheet. Is that intentional? Um, how do you think about that? Did you did you want to do that, or, or is that too much? Does that does that f- take diagnostic medicine, which is cannot be you know shoved in the shoebox and shove it in the shoebox kind of thing? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the uh, one of the things I wanted to, to stay away from was the idea of, of an algorithm. In fact, mm-hmm. one of the you know when we were kicking around ideas for the title of the book, you know the term algorithm Algorithms. came up. Mm-hmm. You know because it's something I think is familiar to a lot of people. But to me, that has a you know, uh, uh, you know, a meaning that I didn't want to convey. It's really, this book isn't about uh, protocols and, you know, if this, then that. Um, it really is. I mean, I think framework is a perfect word a to perfect, describe yeah. because it just gives these learners or anybody in medicine a place to start. And you're right. You know, this book is, you know, not the end-all be-all. It's a, it's a place to start and to think about a problem. And if you want to know everything there is to know about gout as it shows up in the arthritis framework, well, this is not the book for you. I mean, it'll, it'll give you a teaching point or two about gout but it tells you really it's more the 30,000 foot view where does gout fit into the overall picture of arthritis you know when you're reading Harrison's or these other textbooks you know most of the time you're sort of you know really in the in the kind of the, the minute details and yeah. and um, and that this book doesn't try to you know really do that it, it again it's the 30,000 foot view it's a place to start um, and and kind of the idea is where does where do these entities and conditions fit in the bigger picture um, so that's what I try to do with this book. And I really, um, you're right, I, I really didn't want it to be kind of a protocol or, or algorithm-based book. I, yeah, absolutely. And um, and those are the other books. I mean, I think Harrison's and Robbins, um, which are really kind of like encyclopedias of medicine, especially internal medicine and, and, and pathology, um, those belong in your toolbox, in your tool bag, I guess. But those aren't the kind of books that you're going to be thumbing through and leafing through day in and day out. Your book's the kind of book that if you leave one in a call room, it's going to be dog-eared. It's going to be broken spine by the end of the year. Hopefully nobody didn't, didn't take it to their house. But because it's the kind of book you'll be using day in and day out. And, um, and slowly but surely committing the frameworks to memory. Um, do you think that diagnostic medicine is underappreciated in healthcare? I do. Um, you know, there is a study you know, back in 
the seventies in England where, you know, they looked at, at sort of how, how a diagnosis was arrived at. And, um, you know, 80, let's see, 82% of diagnoses were, uh, were established after the history was taken another 9% after the physical examination. And, you know, the last 9% required laboratory testing and technology. And I think there's such an emphasis these days on technology and, um, it's really, um, it's disappointing, and and uh, I think it, it it really it the focus really should be on the the basics, history, physical examination. That is where, you know, and and that stuff is free. Right. You know, it doesn't cost any money. And I think there's uh, we really need to shift away from this sort of, uh, you know, yeah, test your way of to the right uh, of technology. Yeah, exactly. And the shotgun approach to ordering every lab test and imaging study possible. I think going back to the basics is where we really need to focus. And, and so, and that, and that's where most of these diagnoses are made. Listen to the patient. He's telling you the diagnosis. Isn't that the old oh, quote? There's a, well, there's a great book, uh, in cardiology, uh, uh by Marriott, uh, bedside cardiac diagnosis, I think is a title mm-hmm. and, uh, it's great for, for cardiac physical examination. And, and one of the things he will tell you in the beginning is, uh, you know, that the history is so important. Um, and that the, in listening to the patient, you know, he says a lot of, a lot of young, young, young doctors make the mistake of, of thinking that, uh, you know, they know more than the patient, you know, the, the classic response, well, you know, when did, where did you go to medical school? You know? And he says, that's just not the right approach. And, and most of the time the patient will tell you, uh, what, uh, what their diagnosis is if you listen to them. And, um, you know, that's something that I, uh, ascribe to very much. So I always ask my patients at the end of my, when I, you know, what do you think's I, going on? What do you think's going on? Absolutely. You know, I think there's a, like at least a couple corollaries to this once, um, you know, recently I saw this table and it was like, um, what is the impact of lupus anticoagulant or prothrombin 2210 or factor five Leiden on the rate of subsequent thromboembolism odds ratios? And it was divided a table into two columns whether or not you had a personal or family history of uh, blood clot and if you didn't. And what it made, what it reminded me is that even in an age where we move towards like more and more genomic understanding of disease, it's likely that we may not capture everything you need to know about risk from the sequence alone. And there may be some part of this that's related to like family history. Maybe that, you know, not everyone with a certain gene mutation has the same phenotype. Uh, there's something else that we're not sequencing up or downstream, intronic, enhancer region, that kind of stuff that we're missing. And that's where this, this family history comes from um, to be so important. And it clearly is important when it comes to recurrent thromboembolism. Um, the other thing I think about is um, so often in medicine, a person comes to you and they say, you know, my foot hurts, or I'm coming in for this problem, or I have bleeding here. And then the doctors in the workup for that find all these other abnormalities that they end up chasing. And at the end result is they have made many diagnoses and they put the patient on many drugs or prescribe many therapies, but they haven't even addressed the reason that the person came in the office in the first place. And that's the other thing that you kind of um, uh, forget, I think, so often in medicine. Yeah, I mean, the old uh, iatrogenic misadventure, you know, and when one study begets another, that begets another, and then sooner or later, the patient's on a ventilator, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because of a, you know, a, a biopsy that, that punctured the lung or something like that. So, <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm a minimalist when it comes to, um, you know, diagnostic testing. You and want to do it as few with as few diagnostic absolutely. tests as possible. Yeah, that's better for for patients as we just talked about it avoids the, the you know, the incidental finding that that you chase. Um, it uh, you know, it's better for for costs, medical costs. Um, and um, and you know, it it it's just I think 
simplifies, you know, your approach to, to care. And I think anytime you can do that, when you can simplify something, it, it ends up uh, making it better. In the course of writing this book, did you solidify your thinking on some of these topics? Yeah, um, one of the one of the cool things about uh, this book for me was reaching out to some of the giants, you know, in the in the field of whatever topic I was I was uh, delving into. I, I remember, you know, doing the Ascites chapter, and, and of course Bruce Runyon is the is the guy that uh, you know wrote virtually everything we know about acidic fluid, you know. And uh, I reached out to him and I corresponded with him, which was w- something that was really cool. And you know, there's Kaplan in the uh, in the stroke world that I corresponded with. Um, Dan Sexton in the uh, endocarditis uh, chapter. He's a uh, part of the Duke group that created the uh, Duke criteria. You know, he's a, just a great guy and very welcoming. I remember I sent him an email and I think he responded three hours later and, and you know, he started his email off with, uh, you know, uh, sorry for my tardiness, you know, and here's my cell phone. And, and we ended up having a great phone <laughs> wow. conversation. And so I was really getting into things uh, on a really deep level and, and, and you know, talking to the experts in, in their respective fields. And that was a really cool thing for me. And, uh, you know, as you know, when you when you write something and you put it to paper, you really have to be sure you know what you're saying. And so, you know, it forced me to kind of understand these things at a, at a deeper level. And um, and that was something that I really enjoyed about the process. Um, I can't remember the initial question. Now, that was a question is about like if you solidified your thoughts as you're writing. And I think that, um, you know, you're right, of course, I think like I do uh, know that it's it's it's. It's so easy to believe you've thought about something and you have an idea, and but when you have to write it down and how you think about it, you really need to solidify your thinking. And sometimes I joke with people. I mean, you know, I, I sometimes get somebody who read some article that we wrote, and they say, "Oh, I disagree with your, you know, your thinking on this topic. Uh, I think it should be like this." And and sometimes I sometimes I agree with some of what they say, but sometimes I find what they say to be you know scattered and ill conceived, and it doesn't hold through. And I always encourage them that like you know if you feel so strongly, write a write a rebuttal to it. I'd love to read it because the mere act of writing it will force that person to confront. I think some of the difficulties. In, in that position um, because it forces me to confront the difficulties in, in, in my position. I guess, um, you know, I do think what you've done is a Herculean task. I mean, the other the analogy that comes to me is it's like Dave Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. It's like this huge book. Um, why do I think it's so Herculean? I mean, boy, it's, it's not easy to be, to spend so many years working on something that, did you ever have doubts that you would ever be able to get this? Did you ever have that anxiety? I mean, I worked on things that are much smaller than this and there's some days I have a panic attack thinking, oh my God, this will never see the light of day. It's just too much of a task. I shouldn't have taken it on my plate. Yeah, no, definitely. I I think I didn't quite realize what I was getting myself into in the beginning, but, you know, I remember distinctly, you know, telling telling my brother that I was going to do this, and you know, and my brother Steve, who's also in medicine, and you know, he, he laughed at me, and, and that <laughs> and that from that moment forward, I you know, I, I used that and said, okay, I'm. And anytime somebody you know doubts puts you know doubts me or says I can't do something or or it laughs at me, it, it com- totally motivates me, and um, I will not stop until I've uh, exhausted all efforts trying to, to reach that goal, and so um, it was. Um, you know, definitely uh, some, uh, something that I was driven uh, from the beginning, and that and that drive I don't think really waned too much throughout the process. But certainly over six years, there were definitely times where, as I touched on earlier, I doubted that you know I would have enough material to to create an entire book. Um, you know, there were times when I sort of you know doubted the fundamental idea of the book and said, "Gosh, this is this is kind of touching on things on a superficial level." And uh, and you know, uh, there were definitely times that I. Uh, you know, doubted the ability to, to finish it. I mean, things popped up through the process that, 
you know, made me go back and rewrite. So, I mean, the idea of starting off each chapter with a case actually came up, you know, later on. And I uh, so I had to, you know, uh, go back and, and come up with cases <laughs> for all these chapters and, and look back on, on, you know, my career to this point and, and come up with the, the cases that I thought would be a good reflection of, of that problem. And um, so it was definitely, you know, uh, a difficult task. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it was... I, I, at times I felt like I bit off more than I could chew, but in the end it, it were here we are and, and it's done. And, and, uh, so, um, it's, it's gotta be a good feeling. What's your clinical practice like these days you attend on, on the hospital service, mostly teaching or also some by yourself? You know, I do eight weeks on the teaching service and then the rest of the time I, I, uh, I attend solo. Sometimes we have sub eyes come through or some residents do a rotation. So there is a little bit, uh, you know, of, of, uh, kind of that team based aspect there as well, but most of the time it's solo. And then I also, um, I run the, uh, the procedure service for the residents. And, and so I spend some time supervising procedures with them and that gives me an opportunity to do a lot of one-on-one teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, that is really the kind of the breakdown of, of my job. Are you a better teacher now that you've done this now that you, you have pretty much a perfect talk on 50 topics? Oh, I, I, I think so. I mean, I'm definitely better. Whether the talks are perfect or not is up for debate, but uh, but I definitely have honed, I think, you know, uh, my skills in, in delivering a chalk talk. And, um, you know, I think repetition is key. And, and as I mentioned, I mean, you know, these talks are variable depending on who the audience is. And, and uh, you know, um, sometimes it depends on, on what patients you have. Maybe somebody comes in with shortness of breath and, and ends up having, having pulmonary hypertension. So maybe you spend a little bit more time talking about pulmonary hypertension when it shows up in that shortness of breath framework. So, um, you know, there's, it, it gives way to, to some variety, I think, but, um, yeah, over time. And as you mentioned, you're going to, you're going to recognize which questions you ask during the talk that, that really resonate with the learners. Um, and you're going to identify the things, uh, that, that make the talk better. And you're going to focus more on those things and you're going to create your own. Um, and I think I even touched on this in the book, you know, there's a couple of ways to, to approach a problem like abdominal pain, for example, you might separate it, um, you know, by quadrant, you might separate it by organ, you know, liver or gallbladder or stomach. It really doesn't matter how you, um, how you sort of categorize the problem. As long as you are creating a framework for it, you're going to give yourself, um, uh, you know, a, a better chance at remembering the full differential. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny actually, because, uh, you know, I, I didn't look at the literature on, uh, on the idea of a framework before I started. I, it just is common sense that, you know, and it's something that we see in practice that if you have a framework for something, it's just better. You're able to approach that problem easier. And I, I so sort of did this in reverse. So I, you know, had this idea for the, and I was writing this book that was already going to be published. And then I looked and said, you know what, I wonder, I wonder if there's any data on this. And it turns out that back in the fifties and sixties, you know, they did a lot of, uh, studies on, on memory. It wasn't, it wasn't medicine per se, but it was just, you know, mm-hmm. uh, h- how do you organize memories mm-hmm. in your mind? And if you, if you did it randomly, you were much less likely to, to remember things. And if you had a sort of a cohesive organized way with which you organize those, Absolutely. Uh, you know, those words. And so, um, uh, there is a, there's a basis for that. Oh, absolutely. That's so well put. Um, you know, if I were in charge of everything, what I would do is I would, um, I would, I would start medical education with something like your book. I think this is the core of what medicine is and all of this basic science and stuff that's on the periphery. That's the best mechanistic explanation for what we do. But your book is what we do day in and day out. It's how you approach real people with real problems, with real abnormalities. And how do you think about that? And how do you sort through the many things that could be? Um, uh, 
as Plato writes, it's like carving nature at the joints. I mean, there's something to the way you sort of break this down. Um, Andre Mensor, I think it's been a pleasure to have you here on this on this show. I uh, I cannot speak more highly of your book, Frameworks for Internal Medicine. Anyone listening to this podcast who's a trainee, internal medicine resident or medical student on your third year clerkship, this is the book you want to have. You want to read through it. Um, you could be a great doctor if you knew everything in this book, which I hope I know most of it, but I don't think I know all of it because there's a lot I was learning yesterday when I was, or the last few days when I was reading it. Um, this is a really, it's a, it's a work of service for the community, for people who want to think better about medicine that just don't have this resource. There's just not a lot of places you can go. Um, I can't think of any other book that fills the niche that your book has filled. Um, so, you know, I want to thank you for doing it. I think it's a real testament. I think um, OHSU is probably, you know, proud to have you here and um, and uh, really proud that a faculty member has done such a wonderful, wonderful work of scholarship, uh, which this book is. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for the kind words, uh, Vinay. And I, you know, uh, something that I, I was listening to your podcast yesterday and uh, the interview with, with Seema and oh, something yeah. that she said really resonated with me, which is that, you know, anything, any strengths that I may have or anything that I've accomplished is really not a reflection of, of me per se. It's really more a reflection of, you know, the individuals that, uh, kind of inspired that in me or, or that imparted that on, on me, uh, Seema being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I, you know I again I, you know I wish I could take credit for the for the idea of and coming you know inventing a framework I, I really can't it's not something that I came up with it but I did you know put it together in a book and you're right there is no book that kind of ha- compiled all of these frameworks um, in, in you know in one resource and so um, uh, I I really do hope that it that it fulfills. Um, that, that niche, as you mentioned, and that students and others um, find value in it. Um, but again, this is uh, this was really um, a product of of, of hard work um, more than anything else. And um, you know, it's not it's not a product of genius or or you know any any kind of natural gift or, or anything of that nature. It's it, it really was just you know uh, brute work ethic to t- kind of get through this and, and sort of. Uh, you know, build these frameworks and compile it all together. So, um, I, but I, I really do appreciate the kind words, and and I hope uh, I hope f- folks find uh, find it uh, useful. I I know they will, and uh, I hope they check it out. Andre Mansour, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.